Listener Production. Welcome to Real Crime. I'm Adam Shand, and this is Lawyer X, Episode 5. In December 2019, a Royal Commission was waiting to hear from Nicola Gobbo. She was overseas hiding in a secret location while negotiating her appearance in Melbourne. A date was set for late January, but many doubted she would fulfil that. She was represented at all times by legal counsel and would have been aware what was taking place at the hearings. Senior police, past and serving, were due to give evidence before Christmas 2019 to explain what they knew about Gobbo's activities and when they knew it. Finally, the top brass would be called to account in a showdown with the Commission's barristers. But Gobbo was not about to share the spotlight. She decided to get in first with a calculated strike. On December 10, Gobbo told her side of the story, but not to the Royal Commission. She chose a TV interview with the ABC's 7.30 report. In a carefully staged performance, Lawyer X revealed she wasn't hiding from the crooks, but her former comrades in Victoria Police. There's always going to be a risk, um, but my greatest fear is the police themselves. To, to kill you? Well, to either to kill me or to lead, to lead to a position where I am killed. The Nicola Gobbo on the TV looked little like the one I remembered. There was still the shock of blonde hair, but she'd aged and appeared to have foregone makeup for the interview. She looked careworn and vulnerable. Maybe that was her intention. By the end of the interview, Gobbo would appear more like a victim than the calculating and manipulative double agent she'd been portrayed as in evidence. I've come a long way to ask you this, and everybody wants to know why. Why be an informer? Um, Well, it's a complicated story. The easiest way for me to put it is that it began as an ethical and moral dilemma for me, uh, knowing that people were going to be murdered. That morphed into a dependence upon Victoria Police or a small number of Victorian police officers. They made it clear to me that if I didn't continue to assist them and to do what they asked, they would release my name and effectively feed me to the wolves. Her narrative spoke to the innate fear many of the viewers hold for the police, that elements are always beyond judicial control and are prepared to do what's necessary to further their own interests. I went from being effectively feeling like I was controlled by one to being manipulated in a much worse way by a a huge organisation that's got more power and is more dangerous than any purported or alleged criminal. I'm not saying I don't bear some responsibility at all, but, you know, knowing what I know now about their tactics and about, obviously, what happened as time went on, and, you know, I got played. Do you feel guilty or ashamed? My overwhelming guilt is for what my children have had to endure. They weren't even a foreseeable being at the time. Do you feel guilty about any clients 
I don't know that guilt is the right word. I suppose if I had my time over, I would do things very differently. But then on the other hand, I think, what choice did I have in respect of what some people said in front of me? And morally and ethically, I felt like I had no choice. Remember that line, morally and ethically, I had no choice. It's what the police have been saying also. Gobbo was in so deep with the criminals, she couldn't get away. She was, in effect, part of the criminal enterprise. And so the safest thing was to continue informing on her clients. Everyone seemed to accept this would end badly. What started off as a, a threat, which was people like you end up in one of two places, which is either prison or the gutter, dead with a bullet in you. Once it started, there was the threat of, well, you know, you've only got us to protect you. And if you don't do A, B and C, then we're the only thing that stands between any criminal or alleged criminal finding out what you're doing. This went without saying, if we tell anybody, um, you'll be murdered. Much has been spoken about Gobbo's safety. How is she still alive after what she's done? That's the question that everyone asks me. Where has Nicola Gobbo been in the 10 years since she stopped informing? Remarkably, she's lived in Melbourne up until recent times, long after her informer status was known. She has refused police protection. In 2018, she was recognised in the Premier's Volunteer Champions Awards for her skilled and selfless leadership in saving and reviving a Bayside childcare centre in Melbourne. So there she was, volunteering for the state again. She wasn't hiding. She was easily located by anyone wishing her harm, including the police, as she alleges. It was only in March 2019 that Gobbo left the country when the High Court ruled that Lawyer X could be named. There's always potential for a crazy to stalk and kill someone like Lawyer X, but those with serious grudges from the past have left her alone. She acknowledges that. My contacts in the underworld agree. She's under no threat. It's far-fetched that Victoria Police would have Gobbo killed, but they are certainly not above a dirty trick or two, like having child services take her kids away if she ever sets foot in Melbourne again, as she told the ABC's 7.30 report. Victoria Police maintain that the children are potentially at risk and that that potential risk is so great that nothing that I do would ameliorate that risk sufficiently and that therefore it's in the best interests of the children to not be with their mother. I have been snookered by Victoria Police, banished from Australia. Which is all a bit convenient if you're facing a Royal Commission back home that could result in criminal charges being laid against you. Not that the police have shown any interest in charging Gobbo with anything thus far. And there are several alleged crimes they could look at, which I'll go into later. But that would be counterproductive for Victoria Police, to say the least. Anything that I did or didn't do was at the behest and control and with the full knowledge and imprimatur of Victoria Police. So if I'm to be charged, then I suppose we'll be in the dock together. Her public relations project over, Gobbo went back into hiding. Nicola Gobbo, thank you for talking to 7.30. Thank you, Rachel, and I um, have much more to say. 
It was good to hear that Gobbo wasn't finished. However, just when and where she would resume was less certain. She complained that writing a witness statement would take her 1,000 hours and she couldn't concentrate because of the severe nerve pain in her face, which she described as exquisite, like childbirth. And looking after the kids would be a problem. She played every sympathy card she had. Watching the 7.30 report interview, you just knew she wasn't coming back. And that was perfect for Victoria Police. The less Gobbo said, the better. And the senior officers responsible at that time would follow suit. You could see how the interests of Victoria Police and Gobbo had become one. She says she's too scared to come home. And so the cops confirm she is in mortal danger. And all the air will slowly escape from the Royal Commission. The Royal Commissioner would have a mountain of anecdotes about possible criminal wrongdoing but precious little evidence on which people could be charged. There's an old saying in the police, running an informer is like using manure in the garden. You get great results, but it's stinky work and no one wants to handle it. The relationship is always fraught with risk. In fact, Victoria Police was reforming its informer protocols when Gobbo signed up. The idea was called the sterile corridor. When an investigator recruited an informer, they'd be passed to another unit called the Source Development Unit, which would then extract all the information required for the case. The investigator and their superior officers would have nothing to do with the source to avoid potential corruption. This sterile corridor was a handy refuge for the top brass when asked in the Royal Commission about their knowledge of Gobbo's activities. Assistant Commissioner Luke Cornelius was the boss of Victoria Police Ethical Standards Unit, which was part of key investigations involving Gobbo. Yet Cornelius claimed in the Royal Commission to have no idea of Gobbo's identity for years of her informing. Can you think of any reason why investigators uh, who were reporting to you were well aware of that source of information being Ms Gobbo and, and not telling you or not making that clear to you why? Well, um... I was aware uh, that there was a source who had provided us with information in phase one of Briars and that source had been identified to me as a person uh, identified as 3838. Can uh, you, I'm just asking you though, can you think of any reason why those reporting to you, the investigators, will, would be well aware of who that source was and that somehow you weren't? Well. Um, I, I don't know what my investigators knew about the source, but I can say to you that my investigators, when they spoke to me about the source, always identified that source as 3838. Can you think of any reason why your investigators uh, would go and interview Ms Gobbo, get pretty significant information from her and not tell you about it? Uh, no, I can't. I, I can't. Uh, I can't answer that question. I don't know what they were thinking. Cornelius maintained that position even when shown his own diary entry that suggested he did know who informer number 3838 actually was. Uh, and what's also indicated in that diary note is um, that you, uh, Mr Masters and Mr Wilson, were briefed by Mr Overland about Gobbo and her involvement as a human source. Yeah, I don't accept that. Uh, that's clearly what this diary entry indicates. Uh, yes, but I, I have absolutely no uh, recollection of 
the second half of that entry briefed by Simon Regobbo and involvement as a human source uh, need to speak to redacted well, to coordinate issues. I've got no recollection of that. This lack of recollection went all the way to the top to then Chief Commissioner Christine Nixon and her gang-busting deputy Simon Overland, who would rise to the top job in 2009. The Royal Commission did not have enough material to jog their memories, partly because police had been slow in providing it. If there wasn't a document tying them to ownership of Gobbo, they simply couldn't remember a thing. Do you have any recollection? No, I don't. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I'm not sure I was aware. Uh, anyway. I just don't remember the time. It doesn't change my recollection because I remember very little... I don't have a recollection of those matters. All right. No, I wasn't aware of that. I'm just trying to be clear. Look, I don't know. Uh, no. Uh, I don't remember being at this meeting. I don't really have much of a recollection. I don't recall it. I don't recall what I did. If I was, I've forgotten it, but I honestly don't recall now. No, I don't. Well, if I did, I don't now recall it. I don't remember much more about it, to be honest. If Gobbo had breached legal privilege, the responsibility lay with her handlers, not the leadership. Simon Overland told the Commission, had he known, he would have acted. Yet somehow Gobbo was able to snitch on her clients and then represent them. No one did anything. Gobbo knew this was wrong in one conversation with her handlers. And under questioning from the Royal Commission, Overland agreed. Gobbo responded that, quote, the general ethics of all of this was fucked. Uh, although um, she didn't consider it to be illegal. Now, uh, do you agree with that? That it, the ethics were fucked, but it was not illegal? Yeah. Uh, I think so. Well, I mean... Certainly, I agree, the ethics were fucked. Yeah. Um, what about the potential of illegality? I mean, if, for um, example, Victoria Police knowingly um, <coughs> um, uh, have a person and bring that person along, presenting that person to be an independent and impartial lawyer, um, and present that person to someone who is seeking independent uh, legal advice when, in fact, Victoria Police know that that person is, in fact, an informer acting as an agent of Victoria Police. Is there the potential for that to be uh, uh, illegal conduct? Potentially. Could it be, for example, that um, it might have a tendency to pervert the course of justice? Well, it, it, it could do. Right. At no stage in the process did anyone seek a legal opinion, even after one senior officer had begun to question the legality of Gobbo's informing. Would you not, if that concern had been raised, um, make uh, inquiries to uh, satisfy one, yourself, and two, him, uh, that there is no uh, need to be concerned? Well, I... I understood his concern to be about things that she had done. Those things were done. My expectation is those things what, would be... What things? Well, her, her role as an informer. So, so anything that she'd done would be disclosed as part of any uh, prosecutions and that those matters would be dealt with through that process. Um, this is at the same time you've got uh, members of the SDU expressing concerns. I understand that. But they weren't expressed to me. They weren't expressed to you. Simon Overland suggested that Gobbo's clients would discover in the courtroom they'd been stitched up by their own lawyer. In fact, he said whatever was done was done with the full knowledge of the Director of Public Prosecutions. Well, let's get this clear. You've said that on a number of occasions that um, uh, there was liaison with the Director of Public Prosecutions and I think 
you've said in your statement that uh, this was always done with the full knowledge of um, then Mr Coghlan and uh, Mr Horgan. Um, did you give him the full knowledge? Well, the full knowledge as I knew it, yes. The full knowledge was, in fact, that Ms Gobbo was an agent of Victoria Police. She was an informer in early 2006. Are you suggesting uh, that you informed the Director of Public Prosecutions that Ms Gobbo was an informer? No. So you didn't give him the full knowledge? Um, no. It was a telling moment, something that not even the forgetful Overland could deny. It cut through the memory lapses and blame shifting. Victoria Police had concealed evidence from its own prosecutors that could have destroyed the possibility of a fair trial to dozens of crooks. And it happened under Overland's leadership. Can I suggest to you that it, on the one hand, on the best view, it looks like uh, you're putting your head in the sand uh, and ignoring uh, something which was glaringly obvious. No. That's on I, the one hand. No, I don't. No, I wasn't. No. And on the other hand, you know that it's wrong and you don't want to get a legal opinion. No. That's the other view. No. That That's, might be open. No. Not the case. A former Deputy Commissioner, Sir Ken Jones, gave a scathing assessment of his former employer in the Royal Commission. Jones had been brought in from the United Kingdom in 2009 as Overland's deputy. Gobbo had ceased her informing by then, and Jones had a good view of what had gone wrong. My observation is that having got some information about how that operation was run, it began as highly irregular, unethical and deteriorated over a period of years to something that was illegal and chaotic. There was a cultural issue at the heart of the Gobbo fiasco, Jones told the Commission. And what about uh, leadership and accountability? What observations did you make about that in terms of... There was a strong culture of loyalty to the supervisor, your boss, was all. And I thought that was wrong. I thought it was toxic. I was also by then oversighting the Ethical Standards Department and I saw a number of files where this culture had led people into dead ends. And in fact, they were loyal to the inspector or whatever, and not actually loyal to what's doing right and loyal to the law. That was then uncovered at some point during an ESD investigation, and I saw that happen quite a lot. Jones claimed that he was targeted for dismissal because he complained about Gobbo to his boss, Simon Overland. He was critical of the lack of regulation of Victoria Police. Jones noted it was the duty of the Office of Police Integrity to oversee Victoria Police. However, the OPI ran joint operations using Gobbo. This was a genuine attempt to prove a nexus between police and the underworld killings, but it left the regulator hopelessly conflicted. If anything went wrong, the gamekeeper could be indistinguishable from the poachers. Well, I think we wouldn't be sitting here today if Victoria Police was effectively regulated. It's as plain as that. Um, that says to me that there's a fundamental misunderstanding about the need for regulation. Police have tremendous powers to deprive people of their liberty. Um, and they need to be held to account for that, but also held to account for the things they do and for effective delivery of police services. Once they were conflicted and they became increasingly conflicted, they might as well not have been there. This is critical to understanding how key operations went so far off track like the investigation into the murder of Shane Chartres-Abbott, which I covered in episode four. That was a joint operation with the OPI called Briars. And Operation Petra into the murders of the informer Terry Hodson and his wife Christine. Both cases were allowed to run, despite the obvious issues with Gobbo's role as a barrister and fears for her personal safety. 
The OPI was more like a facilitator than a regulator. So I was quite surprised to see that there were joint memorandums of understanding for a number of operations where the OPI were actually in lockstep with Victoria Police. And I thought that put them in a terrible position in terms of regulating Victoria Police. In the end, people sank or swam together and it, it, it compromised them totally, in my opinion. The documentation around these arrangements was almost non-existent. I thought it was abysmal way yeah. to run an operation that? of that sort because there's no evidence there of, of, of risk management. There was no evidence there of alternatives looked at and rejected. Are you dealing with life and death operations here? These, these were highly dangerous uh, consequences for these operations and it just wasn't there. Operation Cardi in August 2005 was one such operation where police and the OPI were in lockstep. The police were able to dictate terms to the regulator. This had consequences for the investigation into the murders of informer Terence Hodson and his wife Christine. Let's recap the history behind Cardi. In episode one, I looked at Gobbo's relationship with a man named Azam Ahmed, also known as Adam. In August 2004, Gobbo's client, Adam Ahmed, was arrested by police. He was a key lieutenant in Tony Mockbell's crew and Gobbo was his lawyer. Fellow inmates from Barwon Jail, including the jailhouse lawyer David McCulloch, told us that Gobbo was in a sexual relationship with Ahmed. I understood at the time that they were engaged. I was of the belief that he had attended family dinners and so he was accepted by the family. At none other than Sir James Gobbo's house, I believe. That was the understanding, that's what was told to me, yes. One of the family? He was one of the family. He was regarded as one of the family. He was a very personable chap. Gobbo denies this relationship in evidence before the Royal Commission. She called Ahmed a stalker and a hopeless ice addict. That may be so. However, documents prove that Gobbo was spending a lot of time with Ahmed. Ahmed was working for Mockbell. His role had been to manage a drug house in East Oakley in Melbourne. On grand final night 2003, a serving police officer, David Meeshall, and his informer, Terry Hodson, were arrested after burgling the house. Meeshall's boss at the drug squad, Sergeant Paul Dale, was also arrested after Hodson implicated him in the crime. Later, Ahmed complained to Gobbo that a police officer from Station had stolen $700,000 to $900,000 in cash. It was Tony Mockbell's money. The commission heard that Gobbo had an affair with this officer. The OPI wanted to haul Gobbo before a hearing on these allegations and they wanted to intercept her phone calls to test her reaction to being called to give evidence. When Simon Overland found out, he asked the OPI to drop off lest they expose his human source Gobbo. This would have sabotaged a much bigger objective, pinning the murders of Terry and Christine Hodson on Paul Dale. Gobbo's secret status needed to be preserved and the OPI agreed. They dropped off investigating the alleged theft of up to $900,000 by a police officer. There was no hearing, no telephone intercepts were made and no one was ever charged. An opportunity was also missed to understand what Gobbo might have known about the murder of the Hodsons in 2004 through her relationship with Adam Ahmed. The commission heard that Ahmed might have had prior knowledge of the murders. He apparently warned Abby Haynes, whom he employed to watch the drug house. This came out in the Royal Commission when Assistant Commissioner Luke Cornelius was in the box. 
you're aware that um, Ms Gobbo was out to dinner with Azam Ahmet on the night of the murder? No. Did you subsequently become aware of that? I'm becoming aware of it as we speak. Something reasonably significant. Uh, you, you would have become aware of the statement of Abby Haynes at some point in time, I take it? Um, look, I, I never saw her statement, um, I, and I, I can't recall having an awareness of its contents. You understand the significance of Abby Haynes' statement was that she said, I was told a number of weeks before the Hobsons were murdered that they were to be murdered. I was told a couple of days before they were murdered that I needed an alibi on Saturday night. And I was given a phone call uh, or received a text message shortly after to say that the job was done. Yeah, I can't recall the details of it. Pretty significant information. Uh, if, yes. If Ms Gobbo is out with Azam Ahmed, the person that was giving her that information. Yes. Gobbo remains a person of interest in the murders to this day, but police were more interested in how she could help to deliver Paul Dale. In December 2008, she agreed to wear a wire. Her mission was to encourage Dale to talk about Carl Williams. Williams had made a statement implicating Dale. Actors are playing their parts. I tried to. I claimed privilege several times in relations to me and you about that. They played a number of phone calls between me, you and Carl Williams. Yeah. Back in 2004 years, you know, all, all they're trying to show is that I had a relationship with Carl. That's what they're trying to say. Carl's clear and made a very in-depth statement against me. Accurate or not? Or you haven't got the statement so you don't know? Very accurate. Very accurate, Okay. Very accurate to the point of every single time we met, he seems to have documented it. It was alleged that Dale had paid Carl Williams to organise the murder. Williams had named the hitman, a career criminal named Rodney Collins. So the theory is I met with Rod Collins. I paid him 400 grand to do the Hodsons. $400,000? $400,000, yeah. Right. And where did you get the $400,000 from? I'd love to know. I wish I had 400 grand, you know. Uh, so anyways, that's the bottom line when I got out of the latest hearing. That's their latest U-Butte information. I said I'd never met Rod Collins in my life. Don't know him. Can't help you. And I haven't. Never met him in my life. In 2009, Gobbo was transformed from undercover police snitch to high-profile witness in the murder case against Dale. This was despite a warning by her handlers to their superiors that using Gobbo as a witness could expose her as a human source, taint high-profile convictions and result in her suing Victoria Police. This was ignored and things fell apart quickly from there. In breaking news, gangland serial killer Carl Williams has been reportedly bashed to death in Barwon Jail just an hour ago. The drug dealer had turned informer and was set to give evidence in the murder trial of disgraced policeman Paul Dale. The murder of Williams by fellow inmate Matthew Johnson in April 2010 ended the prosecution of Dale for the Hodson's killings. Investigators still clung to hope they could pin Dale for lying to the Australian Crime Commission about his relationship with Williams using Gobbo. But then they were ordered to cease all contact with their star informer. The penny had finally dropped that Gobbo was a fiasco waiting to happen. A year later, as predicted by her handlers, Gobbo sued Victoria Police and Simon Overland for breach of duty and was awarded nearly $3 million. Victoria Police had given her just a pen for her service. She was motivated by altruism, she claimed. Now she walked away a millionaire. She'd played everyone, and like the good lawyer she is, Gobbo got away with it. 
And let's not forget that Gobbo is about to sue the cops once again. What do you want from Victoria Police now? Um, to be left alone. I mean, obviously there'll be significant civil proceedings on my behalf that are underway. Are you saying you're suing Victoria Police? Absolutely, yes. As the hearings broke up for Christmas, the Royal Commissioner released transcripts of background chats held with Gobbo. It was a sure sign that Gobbo was not returning to testify. There was little new in the conversations, except for a now familiar recital that Simon Overland was responsible for ruining her life, she alleged. Evil, corrupt and dishonest. Look, I, I, I've never met him, but in the period of, say, 05, 06, 07, when I, I used to refer to it as my voluntary second job, yeah. I was always led to believe that he was well aware of my informing and that he was a huge supporter and encourager of it. You know, there was often circumstances in which I would say to my handle, which, whichever handle I was doing at the time, are you sure you know what you're doing? And each and every time they would say to me that their bosses had approved of it and that Simon Overland was specifically aware of what I was doing and that he had approved of it. It appeared the Royal Commission was running out of steam without new evidence. And that could only come from the criminals who'd been conspicuous by their absence in the hearings. David McCulloch of my Jailhouse Lawyer podcast was in touch with some key potential criminal witnesses and could help deliver them to the Commission, which could have provided new information. But then Victoria Police stepped in and put a stop to that. A few days before Christmas, Border Force officers raided David McCulloch's home and told him he was being deported back to the United Kingdom. In 2017, McCulloch had defeated an attempt by the Home Affairs Ministry to deport him at the end of a 13-year sentence he'd served for a crime he did not commit. Now the Minister Peter Dutton had acted on some spurious information from an unnamed Victoria Police detective to throw McCulloch out of the country. McCulloch called me from inside Broadmeadows Immigration Detention Centre. just seems coincidental that it's as a result of my involvement in some degree with the Royal Commission and you'll see the support I've got was the reason that Peter Dutton overturned the cancellation of my licence in the first place. I've only gone further in my attempts to assist society. It's sad. And I note that Dutton says that under the normal course you'd get 28 days to appeal this but he's not even giving you that. Well, the attempt to deport me quickly, is that the plan? I guess so. You're going to have to get your legal team onto it straight away. McCulloch is not going away, though, even if he's deported. I'll deal with the dramatic new twist in his story in a new episode with my Adam Shand at Large Jailhouse Lawyer podcast. McCulloch knows a lot about police corruption going back to the early 2000s, into the roots of the gangland war. His friends know a lot about the background to Nicola Gobbo's informing that's yet to come out. So far, they've stayed silent. The Commission's public hearings were supposed to finish by Christmas 2019, but they were extended into January on the vain hope that Gobbo would keep her appointment to appear, even if by telephone. McCulloch believed that some surprise witnesses might emerge. 
those who could shed light on Nicola Gobbo's activities on the dark side, her knowledge and possible participation in serious organised crime, police corruption and right up to murder. It's no wonder she's reluctant to return. The Lawyer X story has played out for 17 years and still I feel I don't know how it ends. The question it leaves with me is, will anybody be held accountable for what's acknowledged as the greatest scandal in the state's legal history? Time will tell. Lawyer X is a real crime production, written and produced by Adam Shand. Audio editing, mixing and original score by Matt Nikolic. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. Associate producer is Sarah Grinberg. Research by Nollywe Shand. Listener.